I don't have anything in particular to say today, so I'm just going to put in a little song that I did on the piano that I poorly played and poorly recorded from my phone. But yeah, I, I can't really think of anything else, but at least that's something. The little, like, clacking sounds are my girlfriend's rats <laughs> eating, which I think is a very cute noise, actually, so that kind of adds to it. And then I think there's some some dog some dog nails on the floor <laughs> somewhere in there. But here you go. My guest today is Sasha Waters Freyer. She directed the documentary Gary Winogrand, All Things Are Photographable. It's a really beautiful documentary about a man with beautiful work. I I found myself just staring at some of his photos for a really long time because they're 
they're incredible. They, they don't even look like photographs. It's amazing what he captured. So much life in just a photo. And it really made me appreciate photography. Um, yeah, I'm really thankful that I got to talk to Sasha. And I hope that you enjoy listening to it. Take advantage of the day and tell people that you love that you love them. And uh, try to appreciate what's around you. Here's my conversation with Sasha Waters Freyer. So, tell me a bit about the documentary. Okay, so uh, Gary Winogrand, All Things Are Photographable, is the first feature-length film to ever look at Winogrand and his work. Um, there, It uses almost 400 images, mostly black and white. That's most of the body of work and mostly what he's known for. But there are a number of color slides in there as well. There are 35 new images that no one has ever seen before that my researchers and I found in the contact sheets and thought were really mostly wonderful. Sometimes they're, they're more sort of to show what he was working, set his body of work in the context of his life as well. And mm-hmm. so to that end, I was really lucky to find these audio recordings that the photographer Jay Maisel made in 1975 when he visited Gary in Austin, Texas. Yeah, those were amazing. Two guys hanging out in a diner, that was just, that's like my favorite um, part of the film because in some ways, because it's the only sort of unstaged media of Gary in existence. All the other, there's not a lot, but the other video and film media of him is him, you know, giving a public talk or an artist lecture or teaching a class or being interviewed on television. So this is just him hanging out. And then, of course, there's also the home movies, which he shot throughout the 1960s, which Mm -hmm. provides sort of just a different you know, moving images in color, just sort of a different visual texture to the film as well. For sure. Well, it was beautiful, by the way. I loved oh, it you. a lot. I I was just, like, captured. And it was so oh, interesting because it could have just been a slideshow of the photographs, <laughs> but all the supplementary, like, interviews and things just made it really well-rounded and beautiful. How did you... Pick him as your topic. How did he come into your life? Sure. Well, so I teach in a department of photography and film. I'm actually the chair, and it's you know, so we, I work with photography students. It's sort of in the in the mix, in the oxygen that we all breathe here. And I studied photography as an undergraduate myself. Although oh. I later got my master's degree in filmmaking and became a filmmaker, I have a I feel like photography is kind of my first love. And hmm. Gary Winogrand was an artist who was very important to me when I was studying photography long ago, more than two decades ago, and, you know, he was a big, um, I just always really loved that work, and I and I had sort of forgotten about it a little bit, um, you know, sort of street photography is not necessarily fashionable within fine arts departments, so mm-hmm. it's not widely taught, you know, maybe in a, there might be a day or two on it, you know, you kind of went through in a history of photography class, but, but you know, I thought forgotten about that work until there was the 2013 retrospective at San Francisco MoMA. And, you know, sort of thinking about, you know, there's a lot of press and seeing those images again and thinking about his work. I thought, oh, I just love this guy. Why isn't there a documentary about him? <laughs> that's where it started, just thinking there should be a film about him because he's so Absolutely. important and really sort of fascinating as a person as well. 
what do you find most compelling about his work? I think, you know, there's this great way. I always, you know, I'm a documentary filmmaker because I love to interview people. I mostly, you know, I think they're all smarter than me, right? There's <laughs> great ways to say things, so I end up quoting people in the film. But there's this great thing that Erin O'Toole, she's one of the curators at SF MoMA, says about how, you know, he's try- he's putting so much into the frame. It's like this way of, you know, just packing things in and how much chaos yeah, and kind of I remember formal that. inventiveness can you put inside the four corners of the frame and still have it hold together as an image. And I'm really interested in that idea. I mean, I was interested in it as a photographer. I'm interested in it as a filmmaker. I mean, it's a little different. In time-based media, you know, it's more this question of, how how much can you put in a film and still have it hang together as a sort of standalone time-based experience? I mean, and I'm more of an experimental filmmaker than I am a documentarian, so mm-hmm. that's also that's also something I think about, like just how much can you do formally that pushes at the form without completely breaking things so they fall apart and are incoherent. Yeah, I was just amazed at how much story bled through every single photograph. And, like, I can't even begin to think of the mental process he must have went through when he was capturing things. Like, a lot of it felt when it was being explained in the documentary that it was kind of subconscious at times. Like, just the overall feeling that was being gathered from the photographs. But it's so deep. Like, the picture of the sailor... And the explanation in the film about that being like an existential crisis and representative of like all of us, like, it's like, that's just a photograph and it's just beautiful. And I loved the, the handicap boy photo as well. Like it looks, it looks completely staged in the Mm -hmm. fact that like the sun's shining through and he's, he's over in the shadows. Like it, it just looks fake. And it, it does. It looks very cinematic. It's in, it's incredible to have an eye for that. And I know he took so many photographs, but I, I had never been introduced to his work before this documentary, and I've never seen anything like it. And it's crazy because you think a photo is a photo, and you have your idea of what a photo is, but when someone comes in and can change your perspective on what what a photograph has the capability of capturing, that that's what right. was really spectacular to me, is that he, he created an entirely new dimension to it that I didn't even know you could have with a photograph. Well, he, you know, he really was resistant to talking too much about meaning in the work or talking too much about metaphor in his own work. Mm-hmm. But it certainly really lends itself to that kind of unpacking and the, the people that I interview, particularly the curators or fellow photographers who are, who are able to, you know, look at a single photograph and talk about what makes it a great photograph, both that it's got this sort of content that's, that's you know, I guess, you know, operating in the frame of realism that we can identify with or, or recognize, but then also the way in which it's transformed by its formal arrangement to a metaphor for something much greater. And so that was one thing going in before I interviewed most of the people, not all of them. I asked them to think about what were specific photographs that really resonated with them that I, you know, were there, that I wanted them to be able to talk a little right. more in depth about individual photographs because I do think that there's so much in the content of the images that's, that's so, can be very 
melancholy or romantic or funny or ironic, and there's just a lot there. And then, of course, it's also the photographs are these kind of amazing historical documents now because they are through the passage of time right, showing yeah. us places that don't really exist anymore and ways of dressing and interacting and so forth that don't exist anymore. And it's crazy, like, to try to get into the mindset of what he was thinking when he was photographing. Like, was he thinking this was going to capture historical time? Was he thinking this was going to have all this sort of commentary that you can't help but feel when it just seems like he was just taking photos? <laughs> you know? Yeah, I think he's doing it for, I think he's trying to challenge himself. I think he's just trying to challenge himself to see what photography can do and yeah. be, not going in with too many preconceptions. I mean, really the only, you know, what the, the, the piece in the film that is where he's talking about what he's trying to do is in his Guggenheim application, where yeah. he's talking about like the one the piece he made up until this time and wanting to kind of go deeper. And, and, you know, so he is thinking about this kind of extraordinary historical moment that he's living through in the 1960s. Certainly 1964 is the year he travels across the country and takes this, you know, just this really multifaceted portrait of America in that year in particular. I mean, but he crossed, he crisscrossed the country a few times. Right. So I think he is thinking about, history maybe but i think mostly thinking about just for his own you know thirst for knowledge right. wanting to pursue what what something looks like when it's photographed i another like motif from the film that i picked up on was a lot of people were saying that his photography was kind of a like self portrait like a lot i that that phrase in particular was mm-hmm. used a lot do you think mm-hmm. that was like more subconscious than anything else like like especially um like the the bull chasing the rodeo clown was like the main piece that it was talking about his self-portrait and he said in the right, in the film the it's like quote told, where he said he i and i had never heard that story before until i i was filming that interview with jeffrey franco i thought that was really remarkable right mm-hmm. there's a picture of a clown being chased by a bull and you know honestly i've never particularly cared for that photograph really very much yeah that one you know until until i thought about it in that light and then Mm -hmm. i thought oh this photograph is much like stranger and darker and more interesting than i had given it credit for and that that happened to me a few times there would be photographs that i might look at and think oh you know this one's fine you know doesn't it's fine or it's formally interesting but it doesn't speak to me but someone else would point something out about it and i'd go oh yeah you know so i do think that there's there's this way in which, because there are so many different people talking about photographs, and sometimes people are talking about the same photographs or the same body of work with very different interpretations, such as in Women Are Beautiful. Yeah. I think there's so, I think one thing that comes across is just how multivalent the images are and how people can, you think they're open to different interpretations. I mean, it's not free for all. You certainly have to sort of be able to <laughs> make a claim and. Um, right. Yeah. Uh, back it up and then we don't know I mean we don't know what Gary Winogram would have said because he didn't really talk about his work in that way very much but I do think that he's throughout the body of work you see someone who's looking at people in the world and trying as Susan Kismarek says to figure out where he fits in yeah for sure and that makes me think about photographs in general how you can look at something and not get it or not connect to it and just don't really feel much about that photograph even if it looks nice or the composition is like symmetrical or anything like that mm-hmm. and it's 
it's just strange that like in some ways photography is more complex than like any other medium whether it be film or painting and it's it's funny because it's just a still image but like there's so many like it i think it pushes you to ask more questions when you look at a photograph than if you're watching a film or something because a film usually you more or less can tell what's happening or what's being said or like with the music and the lighting you can tell the the emotion but with photographs it's always so vague and sometimes you just have to apply yourself to it what do you think of that yeah it doesn't direct you in the same way as something with audio or something with music as you point out i mean i think it's funny i have a colleague um at vcu virginia commonwealth where i teach who's a photographer who always likes to say photography is the darkest of the dark arts (laughs) i think that's true in a way because it is so it's still so magical and mysterious i mean we still use it we still teach the dark room here Mm -hmm. you know and and a lot of times students come in and they've only they've only ever done digital photography and now even some people might have only taken photographs on their phones and never had a real camera and then when you use a real camera and you get into the dark room and you experience that uh it's still it's still really it's still really magical yeah when you so so let me ask you so are you so you did not i'm so pleased that you liked the film and that you came to it i love not know anything about gary winogram beforehand never heard the name before this is so how did you find out about the film okay so i am in college right now i'm a sophomore in college and i'm studying for film and digital media and radio and all these sorts of things so on my podcast i just like to interview people in those relative industries i like to interview musicians and filmmakers and documentarians because i think um when i do graduate with film i want i think document documentaries are the route that i'll take more so than feature or like fictional films and i was just looking at upcoming films and i saw this one and it looked extremely interesting and that's how it came to be Yeah, I just saw it on uh, Rotten Tomatoes, I think, actually. That's where it popped up. I was like, oh my goodness, that looks moving. And it was. It was far far better than I could even imagine. Because I was was curious how you were going to go about doing a documentary on a photographer. Because documentary is motion and film. (laughs) Yeah. But I think you did a really, really good job with, like, it did not feel overbearing at all. And there were never any awkward moments of, like, too much photography. And the music worked well, and I just I just think it was wonderful. Not to critique it, but like I just I loved it. No, it's so funny too because the, because one of the requirements of the estate was that you have to see every you have to see every photograph full frame. Yeah. So, which it was fine with me. I mean, it would, I would have done that anyway. But I really like I, you know at a certain point I was like, okay, I'm really I might cut into details, which I do a few times, but mm-hmm. there are no pan. There's none of this sort of Ken Burns. Yeah, I love that. And I just it's, it's just, just there. Very sort of like static thing because i think there's so much energy and movement and vibrancy within the photographs that you don't need to add something on top of it yeah i was worried about that because some some documentaries will do that where they'll have it fade in or they'll put multiple pictures over top of one another or they'll like they won't be shown long enough but these like every i don't know how you did it but like every photo i felt i had just enough time to like soak it in and it was and it wasn't moving when when you see it in the theater it feels a little too quick like really yeah, just because, just 
just because seeing him really big is just totally, it's just totally different way to experience that work. Because you, you know, like Gary Winogrand, the prints are small. So if you see right. it in a museum, it's smaller. If you see it in a book, it's small. But when you see them just like big, it's like, whoa. Right, because you have so like much more to digest. Not, not totally throughout, but I felt like in a few places, oh, I could have held on that longer. But, you know, people, I mean, you know, people go to the movies, but probably most people are going to see it on a laptop or a TV screen. So right, right. Cut it for that would be incredible though because there'd be so much more depth like and you'd it'd be like blown up so you could see every little yeah. little bit of it i'm hoping it screens in michigan i'm not sure that so i have a distributor and they're rolling it out but mm-hmm. there's you know I'm, I'm i would love for it to get to detroit art institute or somewhere in ann arbor since like you know i go to the michigan theater when i'm there right um yeah i would love for it to come there yeah i would i really definitely will go see it if it does yeah i'll let you know if, it, if, it, if it's there cool how do you feel Gary would feel about a documentary being made about him? Oh my god. <laughs> <laughs> That's really hard to know. I mean, <laughs> the fact that his children, his widow, his friends all are, are all really happy with it makes it's like sort of enough for me. You know what I mean? Right, like that makes perfect sense, really yeah. Into it. They feel like it's a it's a know a great fun true portrait of him um because his voice is in it so much it kind of brings him back to life in some ways Mm -hmm. so i don't know that you know i think i i think people who are drawn to being behind the camera often do not like to be the center of attention absolutely maybe i'm projecting because i feel that way myself but (laughs) you know he, he might he might think it's ridiculous he might think it's totally right. absurd that there's a documentary about it, but at the same time, <laughs> you know, he is he is a really important artist from that from that era and from that generation. And I mean, of the, the you know these three photographers that are talked about as being these defining American photographers from the '60s, Winogrand, Lee Friedlander, and Dean Arbus. Yeah, Dean Arbus is the most well known, certainly. But there has not been a documentary about her, and I think it's unlikely that there will be. Lee Friedlander is extremely private. He does not like to even give interviews of any kind. And so even though he's one of Gary's best friends for decades, he mm-hmm. would not be in the film. Oh, I mean, wow. He just wouldn't do it. Um, yeah, I tried really hard. <laughs> and so and so then this is like the one person. It's like, okay, he kind of is a stand-in for that that whole generation in some ways. Right. That makes sense. And he seemed, he seemed fairly open to at least like the people in his immediate life. So. And what I love about the documentary again is that like it doesn't feel like just a documentary where you learn and that's it it feels that you're actually contributing to his legacy if that makes sense because there are moments in the documentary where i feel that there's light shed on his work that wasn't before and i think that's really important like with um with the animals that he did and a lot of the a lot of people are saying that it was just kind of boring and like some of it wasn't like didn't live up to his other work and then i can't remember the name of the person you interviewed who elaborated on it but when he was talking about like he was with his kids and things like that and then and then further in the film when he was taking those pictures um later and he said that they developed the film with the three the three clicks and it showed his his daughter's shoes Mm -hmm. like that that changes the perspective on those photographs entirely and oh, that's yeah, just completely. so special to have captured. And I, I, yeah, I really I mean, appreciate that. I think that. in particular that, 
I mean, yeah, there's there's certainly the, that body of work, the animals. You could, I mean, right. I mean, there is a way of looking at that whole body of work as a kind of self-portraiture, where he's yeah, he's it's it. This is his life at this this span of time. What he's doing, trying to figure out how to be with his children, also making work, trying to you know think about think about yeah, just being a person in the world, mm-hmm. and. Um, I, yeah, I love that. I love that book in particular, The Animals. I think probably my favorite book by him. Really? Yeah. Do you have yeah. a favorite I mean, image weird, that you can think of? There's a bunch of bad. I mean, there's a bunch of pictures in there that I think are kind of dopey. <laughs> but um, but in general, I do. I think it's such a strange, great book. I think also because. Like when I studied photography as an undergrad, I was really into street photography, and I'd go I was in New York. I'd go to the Bronx Zoo. Like it's actually very hard to make an interesting picture humans and animals interacting i've never been able to do it so then you like i think also when you start to try and do it you realize like man he makes us look so right like just this thing he's tossing off and it's so transparent but it's actually really really difficult so i think i I respect that book as well on that level like the photo of the elephant trunk it's like how (laughs) how did you capture that i don't it's crazy how? What is your opinion on the women? Women are beautiful book. I think again, like I, I agree with Erin um, O'Toole, where she, you know she talks about how it's not a particularly good book, mm-hmm. and it sort of hurt his reputation. I mean, and it's almost like the opposite of what I would say of the animals. Like I don't think women are beautiful is that great. I think most of the, a lot of the pictures in there aren't great to me. But then there are some in there that are just worth a million dollars, you know, I mean, there's right. the picture that's been heavily criticized of the woman in the phone booth with her leg up, and she's talking on the phone, yeah. and you can kind of see this little tiny smile on her mouth, and the, the whole frame is tilted, and people kind of coming in, falling out of the frame mm-hmm. on one edge, and on the other edge, and I just, that picture just slays me, it just, <laughs> I just love it. It looks so, like pose. So I'm glad it exists, and then, you know, and I think in the film, what the film is doing is, you know, question about that body of work is not really resolved and it's very gendered like the men say one yeah. thing about it and the women say another thing about it and it's sort of left that way i think almost as a way of suggesting that i mean it's just, people are going to bring their own experiences and backgrounds to criticism mm-hmm. it's one of the reasons i think we need you know all you know greater diversity and all kinds of art criticism film criticism etc because people are going to have different perspectives yeah, for sure. There's no, especially with art, there's no distinct answer. Like, there's no correct answer to it. So that's why it was so interesting to hear. And I think one of the last people you interviewed about the women book was putting it well, and she was talking about, like, her mixed feelings on it and how right. some of the work is very nice, but, like, it was kind of just like a, like, the point was muted, like, the the pictures of the women at the protest, and she put it that... um. Like you're here protesting, and this is a big this is a big movement of feminism, and like you're photographing the women, and fo- like that's the the protest is not the subject, but the woman right. itself, which I completely understood, and that that kind of like captured it for me. The not necessarily issue, but the perhaps misinformation that people get, or the the off feeling from that book is like the that the deeper meanings or the what's the word I'm looking for? Like the study, the ability to study it wasn't there as much because it was just kind of surface level. And I understand like 
from what he was talking about it, he was just like, women are beautiful, and I'm just going to do that. But it's like only a certain amount of analysis can be done, you know, as opposed to his other work, at least, if that makes sense. Right. Well, and again, I mean, I do think, I think that, I think there's a value in that body of work in that it was, he's documenting this transformation of women in American society in the mm-hmm. 1960s in particular, you know, this, this way in which women are out on the street and, and in public. And as, as Shelley Rice points out in the film, some of those women are very joyous and, yeah, very, yeah, you know, there's a lot of like positive energy around the women's movement. And so it's this documentation. I mean, his pictures from New York City in the 1950s, of which there are only a couple in the film, you know, when you see women on the street in the 1950s, they're dressed completely differently. They all have gloves and hats, and it's very prim and proper. And then there's just this societal transformation that's amazing. Mm-hmm. So even at that level, I am happy that we have a sort of documentary record of that. Yeah, that's a really nice perspective on it. So tell me a bit about your path in filmmaking from when you were younger. and. Mm-hmm. And what that was like? How did you? How did you know that's what you wanted to do? Were you surrounded by it as a kid a lot? Or no, 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 no. No, I was very <laughs> interested in writing when I was younger and mm-hmm. theater, actually. Okay. And then I studied photography as an undergraduate, and and didn't really get into filmmaking until after college. I mean, I I was really really, really into photography. Yeah, and I didn't. No, in fact, when I was in college, I'd see the film students, and I'm like, oh my god. Equipment, I can't do. You know, it's too heavy. It's like forget it. I liked being kind of light and mobile with my camera. And, um, right. And then at a certain point, I would, I, I became frustrated. I think by the lack, by like the muteness of photography and wanting to work with sound and wanting to work with time-based media. And so I started. I started both interning in film, sort of working for other filmmakers, mainly documentary, but not entirely. This was in New York. In mm-hmm. The, 90s and then I started I started making my own films first like with a friend like I I was I don't want to say I mean I wasn't self-taught because I did end up going back after I took six years between undergrad and graduate school and then I went back Mm -hmm. for my master's in filmmaking but I had I I learned you know I started my first film was in 16 millimeter and I made it with a friend of mine we were like producing and directing partners on that and that was a documentary and then from then on I was sort it was sort of a mix of documentary and um more experimental work working in working in 16 millimeter which is viable on a kind of short frame like i have a short five minute short that i'm trying to finish right now in 16 right. but, but not for like an hour or an hour <laughs> <laughs> right so yeah so then i got my mfa at temple university and i which is in philadelphia and i didn't you know i'd had i'd I had a kind of nice early career working in documentary in New York and working on PBS films and having some opportunities to work um, in other sort of documentary divisions um, in the news media. And I and I really sort of wanted, I think I wanted to get away from New York and I didn't really want to be... I didn't really want to be in that in that commercial documentary industry like long term. So right. I took a teaching job at the University of Iowa, and that was sort of like I'm going to go do this because mm-hmm. I really like to teach. I discovered when I was in grad school, and I'm going to do this to sort of be my day job, so that I can continue to make films, but right. in a way that's more personal and not as concerned with the marketplace. That makes sense. So what do you 
what do you like about teaching? Oh, it just like totally keeps me on my toes. You know, I just, mm-hmm. I, I really, you know, um, I just like the energy. I like the energy of the students. I like their ideas. I like, I mean, even when I don't always like their like individual ideas, you know, it's like mm-hmm. interesting. <laughs> so, mm-hmm. um, I like that I, you know, it, it constantly pushes me to see new work, to think about new things to bring into the classroom, to maybe look at old work I hadn't thought about and try and think about it in a new way. Think right. about like what's, just a sort of always evolving landscape of like what's important, you know, what's worth mm-hmm. sharing, what are we going to talk about today, what are we, what are the stakes here in these stories we're telling. So do you feel that you're learning also while you're teaching? I do, yeah, I do, I definitely feel that way, I definitely feel that way. That's awesome. For sure. So I have a question um, about perhaps the people you're teaching. From the movie, someone compares Winograd's uh, work to the selfie generation, talking about how the, like he said, the event itself isn't what matters. It's Mm -hmm. the image. And I wanted to know your perspective on that, especially now that we're in that time. That's really interesting that he would say something like that so long ago. Well, it's that it's that he's the, he's, yeah, that he's the first artist who's really starting to look at, yeah, this idea of, of events being staged purely to be photographed, right? Mm-hmm. And so it's almost like, it's so funny because I was just reading an article about these sort of, um, like, ex, like pop-up experiences, right, where it's some, you know, like a museum of ice cream pop-up store or right. some sort of pop-up thing where really the main reason people go is to take selfies. Like the experience is not what's so great. It's that you get to take a selfie of yourself, you know, in that pop-up space, which sounds really banal for me. It seems but sad people, to me. <laughs> people are into that. So, I mean, I think, yeah, the fact that he was, he was one of the first artists to really be looking at that in the seventies in this body of work called yeah. public relations. It is kind of, it's kind of amazing. I mean, I definitely think it was, um, fortuitous for him to be in New York and be, you know, sort of just be around, you know, public demonstrations that are happening on the street in Central Park, you know, but then also like being invited to, um, you know, museum fundraisers and that, you know, those other, so these sort of public spectacles that are happening all around him, he's, he's in that mix and he's responding to it and kind of thinking about it. And that stays an interest of his when he moves to LA, he starts photographing some, I mean, he's photographing all over the place, but some of what he's looking at is, um, movie sets, film sets. Oh. So there are a few photographs in the film, like he's shooting on the set of Annie. Yeah, that's... And he's shooting on the... Like he became friends with John Huston and shot on the set of a few of his movies. Hmm. So he's very interested in that kind of spectacle for the camera. But, you know, yeah. we don't really know what he thought about it because he didn't he, he didn't ever sort of philosophize. Right. It doesn't seem to be a, mo- a, a thing he does. <laughs> right. But yeah, I don't know. It, it seems sad to me, at least now... Like, I, I can't understand that, um, that mindset. Like, I go to a lot of concerts, and I've, I've completely waned that out of my, like, I don't really film at all anymore. I don't take any pictures, or, I think some, I think some pictures can be nice if I'm trying to take a powerful image to, like, have for that event, but, like, recording the whole thing, and having my phone out the whole time, and actually looking at the screen more than looking at the people, just doesn't make much sense to me. And, uh, right, right, right. Because it's like you either going to live 
with the experience, you're going to have the recording of it, and then something like that where it's like live performance, like that's why you're there. Right. You can see other people's videos of it if you don't go. Like, you can get those videos no matter what, but why would you? I just don't understand why you have to be the one to do it. Or even the level now where it's not even that, it's sharing. I think it's even more so that. I, I don't. I don't even think it's like I need that video for myself. I think it's I need that video for other people to see what I'm doing. Right, of course. And it just seems like now at least people around my age are more concerned with having gone to the event rather than having experienced the event. And it just makes me kind of sad. I know. And I agree with you. I don't know. I, I... I had a point. No, no, no. I totally, I totally get it. And I think that's, that sort of idea is like that, that was just sort of starting, you know, when he started taking those photos and Mm -hmm. he's just noticing it around him, like that people are, what are people, are they here for the event? Are they here to be photographed? Like, what is this thing? And so, but again, like, is he being that philosophical about it or is he just responding to, (laughs) to what's in front of him, you know, because it's, because it's a spectacle and it's interesting and he was interested in photographing things that were interesting or dramatic or beautiful and trying to make them more interesting or more dramatic or more beautiful in the photograph than they were in real life yeah and (laughs) another thing that was that was mentioned along the the same time is that that part in the film is about his photography and like photography in general, and this definitely relates to what I was just saying, is like a means of feeling less lonely. Yeah. And I think like that sentiment is at the root of pretty much everything that we do, but like in sure. in photography especially, and like what I was just saying about capturing moments and wanting to share them, like I feel like at the end of the day, that's the motive is to convince yourself that like you're not lonely and other people see you're doing stuff Mm -hmm. and so they don't think you're lonely and you're with people you know and I feel like photographing is a really interesting medium for that because in some ways when you photograph you're kind of isolating yourself to be the observer but you're also capturing it and cementing that you're a part like you're attaching yourself to that moment even if you're not in that moment. Like if you if right. you photograph two people kissing, you're obviously not kissing them, but you were the one who made that moment right. permanent. Well, and in Winogrand's case, I think he was I think he was lonely at times, you know. I mean, I think he had this this sort of very rich life in a lot of ways, but I think he also had this kind of existential loneliness, but I'm just I don't know. I'm maybe I'm just over-psychologizing. <laughs> At least that's how I feel. I feel that way yeah. often. And I'm curious because of what you said about... I, I've interviewed a few documentarians and many of them have said what you said about wanting to be the ones behind the camera. Yes. Why do you think that is for, for yourself personally? Um, <laughs> I don't know. I mean, I, I don't know. It just... I. I know i like i like talking to people but i also like listening to people i'm just really interested in it's more like about listening and listening to stories Mm -hmm. and um i mean it's certainly really wonderful that the attention that the film is getting but to the extent that like i get attention like it's not i'm not interested in that it's more like i want the film to get attention absolutely um 
that. Who knows? That's just psychology or individual temperament or, um, yeah, I don't know. Right. I feel like there's a very human characteristic in making a documentary, depending on what the documentary is, because that's another thing is there are documentaries similar to the ones you made where they're about something or someone and they're kind of a collection of that person's work. And then there's completely different documentaries where you're just where like you're doing the observing, if that makes sense. Right, where you're just sort of in the mix. Yeah, no, I'm much more interested in sort of research-based. And, you know, one thing I was going to say is, you know, I don't know if, you know, the that the filmmaker Errol Morris was a private investigator before he became a filmmaker. I did not know that. Yes, and which always always made so much sense to me, you know, because I do think it's like this very, like, affiliated, it's very affiliated (laughs) being a documentary (laughs) filmmaker or being a, being, maybe being a psychotherapist, you know, and it's like this kind of like, you know, like people who are interested in like research and probing questions and, you know, it's, it's a, yeah. I like I like to be more vague. <laughs> That's my problem. I like to get I like to make the person I'm talking to make the question more, I guess. Like I don't I don't necessarily probe as much as I do poke. <laughs> right. If that makes sense. Well, yeah, but it's a little it's different if you're talking about interviewing for a podcast versus interviewing for Yeah, for sure. That's definitely a completely different. I think well, I guess it depends. I guess it depends on the editing process too. But yeah, um, that's why I'm trying to figure yeah. it all out because I, I like to. Somebody, somebody asked me. I, I did a screening at Cornell University a couple of weeks ago. Mm-hmm. There was a bunch of people afterwards. Like we all went out for drinks, and there were some students there. And someone asked me about interviewing, and you know, because he was saying like, oh, when I do, when I when I film interviews, when I try to interview people. You know, I don't, it's like, it doesn't come out the way I want, or it's like, I can't quite get the thing, and one thing <laughs> I did was, well, I do a lot of research, like, I really, I really, like, have done a lot of research before I sit down and film an interview with someone, but the other mm-hmm. thing is, this person, this young person said, I, I don't like to ask people uncomfortable questions, and I was like, oh, well, I actually love to ask people uncomfortable <laughs> questions, <laughs> like, that's just, like, I really like it, so... I feel like that's how you get the best. You do have to have that kind of like quirky, temperamental right. to, to uh, I don't know. You get the best answers out of that, though. Yeah. I mean, as long as you don't offend someone, but. <laughs> right, right. There's that. I mean, it, there's definitely that. Well, I don't, I don't think offensive is the word, actually. I just mean um, you don't want the person to shut down, you know? Like, you don't want them to feel that you've crossed the line. Because at the end of the day, like, especially what I'm doing right here, like, we are complete strangers to one another. And I have to find a way to make a conversation for an extended period of time. And I think we've done right. it. But, <laughs> I but I it's... So I'm actually just looking at my thing and realizing I have a meeting at noon. And it's oh, my goodness. Yeah, yeah, so <laughs> well, we can definitely head out. Gonna come knock on my door pretty soon. Well, thank you so much for talking to me. I appreciate it. Yeah, this was a lovely